We're going to start now in 2 Kings this morning. We just finished 1 Kings on Wednesday night. And I want to remind you as we move into 2 Kings that we're not starting a new book. We're in the same book that we were in before. For originally, the book of Kings was just that. It was the book of Kings. It was divided around the time that the Septuagint was written. If you're wondering what the Septuagint is, it's that, it was that uh, Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, so Hebrew into Greek, back around 280 or so years before Jesus came. And at that point, they divided the kings into First and Second Kings, just to make it easier for us, I guess. But we continue on in the narrative of the kings of Israel and Judah. You may recall this whole thing started out where Solomon was the king, and when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam so divided the people, so upset the people that the kingdom split into two and ended up with Israel in the north led by Jeroboam who was a great idol worshiper, that is his claim to fame he led the kingdom of Israel into idol worship big times, and then in the south you had Judah, which was led by Rehoboam, and then after them we follow the progression of the kings, which we've been doing and we continue on this morning doing that in Judah, Jehoshaphat is the king. So Judah in the south, Jehoshaphat is king, and he's a godly king. And we'll see a little bit more of Jehoshaphat. But he's a good guy. Uh, he made a few mistakes, had some weaknesses, especially in allying himself with Ahab, king of Israel, and with Ahaziah, Ahab's son. And, and that kind of got messy. But overall, he, he is listed as one of the good kings, which is important because there aren't that many of them. In Israel, the wicked Ahab is finally dead. And his son, a man by the name of Ahaziah, Isaiah continues in his father's footsteps. Ahab is the most wicked and evil of all the kings of Israel. Ahaziah wasn't a lot better, but wasn't quite as bad as his father. So we pick up in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 1, but our focus this morning is not on the kings. Our focus is on the prophet. As we continue forward, we're going to consider one more time the exploits of Elijah the prophet. I love Elijah. I love his stories. Some of the most powerful stuff that we've seen so far in the Hebrew Scriptures. Exciting, interesting things. We'll see more of that today. Beginning in verse 1 of 2 Kings chapter 1. Now Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. And Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber, which was in Samaria, and became ill. And some commentators believe he was drunk, which is why he fell through the lattice, which is entirely likely. So he sent messengers, and he said to them, Go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I will recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Well, then Elijah departed. When the messengers returned to him, he said to them, Why have you returned? This is Ahaziah talking. Why would you come back? And they said, A man came up to meet us and said to us, Go return to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baals above the God of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And Ahaziah said to them, what kind of man was he who came up to meet you and spoke these words to you? And they answered him, He was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound around his loins. And he said, It's Elijah the Tishbite. 
And the king sent to him a captain of fifty with his fifties. And he went up to him, and behold, he was sitting on the top of a hill, and he said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. Now understand, the reason why the king sent a captain with his fifty is he is sending a threat. You go get Elijah, and you bring him back here, and we're going to deal with him once and for all. You don't send an army unless you are sending in a challenge or a threat. And that's what's going on here. And so Elijah replied in verse 10 to the captain of the 50, Well, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So Ahaziah sent again to him another captain of 50 with his 50, a slow learner. And he said to him, O man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. And Elijah replied to them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Well, then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. So he sent again the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. When the third captain of fifty went up, he came and bowed down on his knees before Elijah and begged him and said to him, O man of God, please let my life and the lives of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Someone's learning. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the first two captains of fifty with their fifties, but now let my life be precious in your sight. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him, and do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. And then he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baal's above the God of Ekron, is it because there was no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but shall surely die. So Ahaziah died, according to the word of the Lord which Elijah had spoken. And because he had no son, Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. Now, it gets confusing after a while, going through all the lists of kings. We've talked about before, there are 19 in Israel, and all 19 are bad. More than 20 in Judah. And as you go down, you're trying to figure out which king is which. Something that I've done, and I'll just throw this out to you as a, as a, a thought. I've gone through, and in my Bible, I've looked up the kings of Judah where they're first listed. And I write a little J and the number of the king. So how many kings down the line they are. And then I put a little crown there so I remember, okay, that's, that's the kings. And I do that with the kings of Israel. So right now I have in my passage here, I-9 with a little crown for Jehoram. He's the ninth king of Israel in the north. But there's also a Jehoram who is king of Judah in the south. So don't get confused. There are two Jehorams here. Both kings, one of Israel, one of Judah. Now going on in verse 18, it says, The rest of the acts of Ahaziah, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Chapter 2. And it came about when the Lord was about to take up Elijah by a whirlwind to heaven, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. Now remember, Elisha is now the protege of Elijah. Elijah was the first great prophet, and following him, trained up by him, is Elisha. And so it says they went down to Bethel, verse 3. Then the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Be still. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. 
The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho approached Elisha. And they said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he answered, Yes, I know. Be still. What's going on here? Well, these are a group of prophets that like to hear themselves talk. They're not giving any new information. They're not enlightening Elisha in any way. They just kind of like to say that they're able to prophesy something that's happening. And Elisha already knows this stuff. He says, yeah, I know. Be still. Hold your tongue. I don't need to hear it again from you. And let me tell you, there are people you will run into in life, in the church, self-proclaimed prophets, who love to tell you things. And oftentimes it's stuff you already know. So when they do that, just say, be still. Be still. Now going on, it says, Then Elijah said to Elisha, verse 6, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you, good, faithful Elisha. So the two of them went on. Now fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them at a distance. While the two of them stood by the Jordan, Elijah took his mantle and folded it together and struck the waters, and they were divided here and there, so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. He said, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you, but if not, it shall not be so. And as they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. Great, great story. I'd like to say, thus ends the life of Elijah, but that wouldn't be true. Let's pray and we'll go further on. Father, I pray that you will bless the study of your word this morning. And I ask, precious Holy Spirit, that you'll be our teacher and our guide through this life of Elijah that is so fantastic. And help us to see truth. And then understand, Father, from the solid place of, of sound scripture, that what we are reading and what we are seeing truly is of you. Father, I pray you'll bless our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we've talked about, Elijah's name was synonymous with his mission. Elijah's name meant Yahweh is God. And he showed up in Israel at a time when Israel needed to hear that more than anything else. Yahweh is God. Not Baal, not Ashtoreth, not Molech, none of these other idols. They can do nothing for you. Yahweh alone is God. And he preached that message so well. The only downside of Elijah's entire life is when we see him fleeing down to Mount Horeb. When Jezebel is seeking for his life. And even at that point, he is just a worn out man. He's in his mid-ministry crisis. He's had a hard time. He's seen so much and it's so overwhelming. He almost just needs a break and God provides that for him. Shows up as a still, small voice. Which, by the way, I love the way the Father works. Meeting us right where we are. And think about it, if you were Elijah, have you ever been in that place in your life where you're just wiped out and you're tired and you're exhausted? The last thing you need is for the Lord to blow the roof off your house and go, everything's going to be fine! You know? I'd have a heart attack. But what the Lord does in those times is you almost can feel His hand on your shoulder and He says, it's alright. Just settle down. It's going to be okay. 
He knows how to touch us right where we are. And in those times where I'm blabbering like an idiot and I'm doing life my way and I'm just rushing along, those are the times where sometimes where the Lord will say, Rick! Hello! And slow me down. He knows how to meet us where we are. And so he met Elijah where he was. And when Elijah needed to call down fire from heaven, man, the fire came. And when Elijah needed to be met with the still whispering of God, the Lord was there. Well, Elijah lives a life that is so pleasing to the Father that rather than going through the valley of the shadow of death, Elijah boards a chariot of fire and is whisked off into heaven. It's an amazing story. Incredible even to imagine. Can can you think for a moment? You're Elisha. You're standing there and you watch this. First of all, out of the clouds, here comes this flaming chariot with these flaming horses. And it lands there and Elijah's whisked up and off he goes. And you're just, oh, what, what do you say? And what did Elisha say? My father, my father, the chariot of Israel. By the way, it says in your Bible, it probably looks like it reads chariots, plural. It's chariot, singular, in the original Hebrew there. What many think, and I would tend to agree with them, is Elijah is calling, Elisha is calling Elijah the chariot of Israel. Because he carried the message of God so powerfully throughout his life. The chariot of Israel. But if you think about this, no one else in history prior to it had ever been caught up to heaven save one man. Genesis chapter 5 verse 24 tells us that in the seventh generation from Adam, it says Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. I often wonder what Enoch's wife thought about that. You know, I'm going to go play golf with the Lord today and he never comes home. You know, they look for him, not a trace. Enoch walked with God and God took him. Both Enoch and Elijah received amazing exemptions from death. I love that. Now I mention this because here in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Lord foreshadows something of a greater promise which He gives to the church. Now I had someone ask after uh, first service this morning, now so Enoch never died, but the Bible says it's appointed for all men to die, and, and then comes judgment. So is there a point in time when Enoch's going to die? And if not, that's not really fair that he, he gets to not die. Somehow. And I thought about that. I said, well, you know what? If, if you're alive at the time of the rapture, which personally I'm planning to be, you won't die either. You get to join the company of Enoch and be exempt from death, which I think is the way to go. Either that or in a fiery chariot, I'll take either one. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 uh, cements this promise for us. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Not with a still small voice that time. But with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. That's rapture theology. Perhaps you've heard of it. The word rapture, coming from the Latin word raptus, which is this word you see in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, caught up. Harpazo is the word in the Greek. You don't have to figure out all the Latin and the the Greek and all that stuff. When you hear someone say rapture, that's what they're talking about. It's very simply caught up. And the Lord says the day is coming, and I believe it's very near, when we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 5 says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up he was pleasing to God. God just liked Enoch. 
He just liked hanging out with him. He liked walking with him. And again, I see Enoch and God going for a walk that afternoon in the fellowship that they had together. And the Lord just saying, Enoch, let's just keep going. Come on home with me. Let's just keep walking. And he was taken home. Indeed, Elijah himself was pleasing to God. And so it was taken up in the brilliant display of that fiery chariot drawn by horses of fire. Gerlach said, as he was an unparalleled champion for the honor of the Lord, a fiery war chariot was the symbol of his triumphal procession into heaven. Now I know there are some who would say, come on, pastor. I find this hard to believe. I find this a little difficult to swallow. And in fact, I think I mentioned on a recent Wednesday that I was watching as a newscast was making fun of the rapture. Now, this is the second time I've seen this in recent days. You know, newscasters making fun of it, poking fun at Christians who would believe such a nutty, crazy thing. And the way he was talking about it, I'm sitting there in my living room going, yeah, it does kind of sound weird. It does sound a little, a little bizarre, a little out there, a little Greek mythology-ish, you know? And when you read the story of the chariot of fire that picks up Elijah, come on! That sounds like something Zeus would write in. You know, you high school students who have read the Greek mythology book that bored you to tears. I mean, that, that you see these stories and you think, well, that's awfully close. It's, it's kind of just that weird religious stuff. It's kind of hard to swallow. Well, my friends, the prophets of Bethel thought the same thing. And I'm just going to put in a little plug for next Sunday. We're going to talk about that. Not only about the rapture of the church, but the attitude that some people have toward it. That it just sounds a little hard to swallow, a little ridiculous. If those doubts are running through your mind, I invite you to come back next week and we'll look more in depth at it. But we have something more fantastic to consider the rest of this morning, and that's the greatest of all the exploits of Elijah. The one thing I think he will do that are, are, will be uh, the, the hallmark, really, of his life. You see, Elijah had an amazing life. But the thing that makes this prophet so fascinating to me is not his past, it's his future. Not what he's done, but what he will do. And you've got to track closer with me on this and follow in the scriptures to understand it. The prophet Malachi. <laughs> the Italian prophet, you know. Actually, Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5. The Lord says through Malachi, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. 500 years after Elijah died, the prophet Malachi comes on the scene, and the Lord speaks to him, through him, and says, I'm sending Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. This is a future tense thing. Elijah is already 500 years in the air. You know, I can't say he's in the grave because he never went to the grave. 500 years later, Malachi gives this interesting prophecy. And because of this, Jewish scholars and rabbis and theologians over the centuries have developed many different stories about the man Elijah. For example, some say Elijah is presently comforting Messiah until he eventually comes. Because, you know, in, in Jewish faith, there's, there's not the belief in Jesus as Messiah. They believe Messiah is coming, but he just hasn't come yet. Others say when Elijah comes, he's going to settle all disputes, questions, and interpretations of the law, as well as performing a series of miracles, not the least of which will be revealing the hiding place of the Ark of the Covenant. People want to know. Some have even said that Elijah will come and blow a loud blast on the shofar, causing the dead to rise up out of their graves. 
You may have heard of the tradition of the Passover meal in which a cup of wine is reserved on the table for Elijah, set aside and poured for him, and at a certain point in the Passover Seder, the youngest child at the table is invited to go to the door and see if Elijah might actually be there. And so for generations of young Jewish children, that excitement, is Elijah coming to dinner tonight? And wouldn't it be awesome to be that Jewish family who opened the door and found the great prophet there, heralding in the messianic age? And there's a tragedy that runs hand in hand with that. Knowing that Elijah isn't showing up at these satyrs. Not in the way that they believe he will. One of the traditional songs sung in Jewish households at the close of the Sabbath includes this refrain. The prophet Elijah the Tishbite from Gilead, may he come to us soon with the son of David the Messiah. And so across the centuries, the Jewish people have asked, when is Elijah coming? And what's that going to look like? And what's he doing right now in the meantime? Because Elijah, along with Moses, as you know, stands as one of the two greatest prophets in the history of Israel. Well, thankfully, we don't have to wonder at his arrival. We don't have to guess about Elijah's future because we have been told. It's clearly marked out for us in the Word when he's coming, what he will do. The future of Elijah can be seen in three ways. I'm going to give these these to you this morning. If you're a note-taker, you might jot these down and use this as an outline. The future of Elijah can be seen in that Elijah appeared to edify Messiah during his first coming. Elijah appeared to edify Messiah during his first coming. Elijah, number two, appeared to identify Messiah at his first coming. He appeared to edify Messiah. He appeared to identify Messiah. And number three, and finally, Elijah will appear to testify to the Messiah before his second coming. We'll walk through those. Now, I'll remind you of those as we go here. The first of these two points hinges upon a certain happening in the life of Jesus. And again, this would be about 850 years or so after the prophet Elijah had been caught up to heaven. A conversation that happens in this amazing, what's called the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. And it's in Matthew chapter 17. And it's there that Elijah appeared to edify Messiah during his first coming. Matthew 17 verse 1 tells us, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brothers. And he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His garments became as white as light. In other words, Peter, James, and John got to see Jesus in his glorified state. They got to get a kind of a preview of the coming power and glory of Jesus as King. And they're blown away by it. But verse 3 is interesting in Matthew 17. It says that Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Now in the transfiguration of Jesus, there is so much going on. It's a powerful passage and I'd love to talk about it. We're going to talk about it this fall. Because as I shared before, once we finish 2 Kings, we're going to take an Old Testament break for the first time in nearly five years. And we're going to jump ahead and go through the Gospel of Matthew and study that down. I'm really excited about that. So we'll have more time to talk about the transfiguration then. But there's one thing I want to know that we can know this morning. What were they talking about? Moses, Elijah, and Jesus on the mountain. Peter, James, and John on their faces. As these three, these two great prophets of Israel, speak with Jesus there. And you know what? It wasn't the weather. And it wasn't the local sports news. It wasn't who's going to win the next Super Bowl. I mean, they, what was this conversation between these three men? And we don't have to guess. 
Luke says in his gospel, Luke chapter 9, verse 31, Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. You see, at this moment, Jesus, with Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the apostles, probably down at the base of the mountain, were on, I believe, Mount Hermon. Now, if you go to Israel, they will point out to you a different mountain in the Jezreel Valley, and they'll say, that's the mountain of transfiguration, and it's a guesstimation, and it really doesn't work biblically. Because right before the transfiguration, those of you who are interested in these things, right before the transfiguration, Jesus and the apostles were at Caesarea Philippi. Remember, that's where Peter gave his confession of Christ. If you go to Caesarea Philippi, you realize you're up in the northern reaches of Israel. Big rock cliff there. And from there, the closest mountain would be Mount Hermon. Most likely, that's the mountain that they were on when Jesus was transfigured. But they're just about to leave that mountain, and from there, they will journey all the way, about a week's journey down to Jerusalem, and the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus would be crucified. So what does the Lord do? He sends a holy huddle. He says, all right, Moses, Elijah, go meet Jesus right now and edify him. Encourage him. Encourage him about what he's about to face, how he's going to go through this. Build him up. I don't think I'm making too much of a stretch here because that's why they came. That's what they were talking about. Edifying Jesus on the way to the cross. Now you might say, edifying Jesus? Wait a minute. Since when does Jesus need edification? Since when does God in the flesh need to be encouraged? Since He put on flesh. And since He became flesh and blood. You see, the Bible is very clear. The experience of Jesus walking as a human was so that He would be like us in every way. Understanding. It develops, not so much for God, because I don't believe it changed His compassion for us, but for us, it changes our understanding of Him. Wow, He needed to be encouraged. So He knows what it's like. So when I need encouragement, I know I can go to Him. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let's draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And that thought alone is edifying for me. Just knowing. Jesus, man, he's been there. He's gone through it. Have you been discouraged lately? Jesus was discouraged. Jesus was discouraged? Yeah. There were so many times he looked at his apostles and just went, How long am I going to have to put up with you guys? He loved them. It was hard. He lived life. He knows what it's like. And if Jesus himself needed encouragement, gang, it makes him all the more compassionate when it comes to your struggles and to mine. So Elijah appears. The real Elijah appeared with Moses to edify Jesus during his first coming. Secondly, Elijah appeared to identify Jesus at his second coming. Or, oh, sorry, still at his first coming. He appeared to identify Jesus. I, I put little quotes around appeared to because it wasn't in actuality Elijah who identified Messiah at his first coming. It was another. In essence, it wasn't the person of Elijah, but it was someone who came in the power of Elijah. Luke chapter 1, verse 17. The angel said to Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, that it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. 
So John the Baptist, you may have known this, is an Elijah-type character, but he is not Elijah. Turn your Bibles over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We've seen Elijah appearing to edify Messiah, and now an Elijah persona, someone in the power of Elijah, appears to identify Messiah. Watch this, verse 6 of John chapter 1. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. And indeed, when John was baptizing at the Jordan, he saw Jesus coming his way, and he cries out. Skip down to verse 29. It says, he cried out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is identifying Messiah. He says, this is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. John was older than Jesus. And so he's saying, this is him. This is Messiah who was there before I was, who existed before I was born. He says in verse 31, I did not recognize him. But so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. What's he saying? I didn't know who Messiah was going to be. I wasn't sure. Someone else this morning, and I'll point this out, was interesting, did say that John the Baptist as an infant in his mother's belly did have some sense because you recall when Mary came to see Elizabeth that the babe leaped inside the belly of Elizabeth. So there was something in the spirit, at least, of John the Baptist that was excited when Mary Mary was near and the child Jesus was in her belly. So there's something about that. But as they grew up, John the Baptist and Jesus, Bible students, you may remember this, were close cousins. They were first cousins. And yet John says here, I did not recognize him. Read on. He says, I came baptizing in water so he might be seen to Israel. Verse 32, I have seen the Spirit descending on him as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And John says, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. He identified Jesus. Well then, if he was his cousin, how come he didn't recognize him? He didn't recognize that Jesus was Messiah. Which tells us something about these two boys growing up. That Jesus was like any other kid. That there wasn't anything fantastic, at least when John was around. John never saw anything that would have led him to believe that his cousin was Messiah. And yet, when the Spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism, wow, John knew it. This is Him. It was Jesus all along. He truly is the Messiah. And so John identifies Jesus as the Messiah. Now there's only one problem with this metaphorical Elijah scenario. That that John is in the power of Elijah and so he's representative of Elijah. If you look at verse 19, John chapter 1, go back. It says, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. What? You're not? But I thought Elijah was going to come and and going to precede Christ. That's what they were looking for, the the Malachi prophecy. The Jews were looking for the the preceder of Christ, and they're wondering, is, is, is John this guy? 
He says, no, it's not me. According to John the Baptist himself, he is not the Elijah referred to in Malachi's prophecy, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Back in Matthew, think through this with me for a moment, they're coming down the mountain after the transfiguration of Jesus. And it tells us in verse 9 that Jesus commanded them, saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, why then did the scribes say Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Confused? Is he Elijah? Is he not Elijah? John says no. Jesus says yes. Which is it? Well, Jesus said two things when they came down from the mountain about Elijah. He said, Elijah has already come. And he said, and Elijah is coming. John the Baptist was dead at this point. And he says, Elijah is coming. How can both be true? Because Elijah is still coming to fulfill the prophecy of Malachi chapter 4. That the coming of John the Baptist was not the coming of the actual Elijah. Elijah is going to literally and actually come before the return of Jesus. John the Baptist came as a forerunner, one a type of, a person in the power of Elijah, but not the person of Elijah. What's interesting about this for me is that Jewish tradition actually teaches that there will be two future messiahs. Did you know about this? It's the only way you can make the Hebrew Scriptures work. Because as you read through, the Hebrew Scriptures proclaim two different kinds of things. A suffering servant, Isaiah 53. One who will die for his people. One who is mourned over by his friends. They will look upon him whom they have pierced, Zechariah says. Someone who's going to suffer. And then there's a Messiah who's coming as king and glory and ruling and reigning. Two very different pictures that could be confusing. And so, Jewish rabbis today teach there's a Messiah ben Joseph who's coming. And he's going to suffer and die. And he'll be followed 45 days later by Messiah ben David who will rule and reign. And it's how they try and figure out the Hebrew Scriptures. But rabbinical tradition holds that Elijah himself will come in that 45-day period between these two messianic figures. Now that's not Bible. That's when men try to figure something out in their own wisdom without the wisdom of God. Elijah himself will come in person and in power, but he will come to precede the second coming of the one and the same Messiah, the one who came as the suffering servant in the person of Jesus and will return again as the glorious King, Jesus Christ. Listen again to the specific wording of Malachi. He says, Behold, I will send you, Elijah the prophet, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Don't miss this. Elijah. The real Elijah who went up to heaven in that fiery chariot will be a forerunner gang of judgment, not of grace. John the Baptist was a forerunner of grace. A proclaimer that the kingdom is near, that the king is here. And that he wants to receive all his people and draw them back to himself. John the Baptist was a forerunner of Jesus Christ who then died and brought grace, ushered grace into the world. But when Elijah himself comes, it will be as a forerunner of judgment. And things will be heavy. So we see the person of Elijah himself came to edify Jesus on the mountain. The power of Elijah came in the person of John the Baptist to identify Jesus as Messiah. 
But Elijah's got one more job to do, and it's the most exciting one so far. The greatest, I believe, of all the exploits of Elijah. Turning your Bibles over to the book of Revelation, chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. Number three in our outline, if you've been following that, Elijah will appear to testify to Messiah before his second coming. Watch this. Revelation chapter 11, verse 3. We'll start there. The Lord speaking, says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. How long is 1260 days? A lot. Many days. Many much days. Three and a half years. Some of you said that. Three and a half years. Verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. What's that mean? Listen to the Revelation study. It's online. You can go to it. Check it out. It'll be explained to you there. I'm not going to do it this morning. Verse 5. If anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so the rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. They have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Their dead bodies, verse 8, will lie in the street of the great city which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt where also their Lord was crucified. Where is that? Where is that? Jerusalem. Where was Jesus crucified? Right outside the city of Jerusalem. Right outside the city gates there. So why is it called Sodom and Egypt? Because Jerusalem will be that morally degraded by the time this happens. Jerusalem, the city in which God places His name, will be a place of such moral degradation that mystically it's referred to here as Sodom and Egypt. And it's not surprising then that this Thursday the, uh, there's going to be an international march of gay and lesbians in the city of Jerusalem. If it's not stopped. And there are a lot who are trying to stop it, but it looks like it's not going to be stopped and it will actually be happening in Jerusalem. And I, you know, I think about that and I think, what an absolute in your face to the Lord. God says, Upon, of all the cities of the earth, I place my name in this one. This one city, Jerusalem, I'm calling that one my city. And that's the place where they want to hold this. So it's not surprising that this place will be called Sodom and Egypt. Verse 9. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues of the nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. It will be like Christmas in the world. The prophets are dead. The prophets are dead. Let's have parties. Bring presents. This will be great. It's their death day. Happy death day to the prophets. I mean, this is where the world's going to end up. It's tragic. Verse 11. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. And they stood on their feet. And great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. And Elijah gets to be raptured two times. Caught up the first time in the fiery chariot, but the second time he gets yet another rapture where he gets called up. 
And the whole world, gang, is going to watch this happen. By the way, until this generation, that was impossible. This is the first generation where we can watch in real time what's happening on the other side of the world as it happens. And you can imagine in that moment, this is Keith Oberman on location in Jerusalem, where the two prophets we've seen for the last several years have been lying dead for three days, rotting in the ground. It's a disgusting, wait a minute, something's happening down there, there's movement, hang on. Keith Olbermann, I don't know if he's going to be there during the tribulation. It's really between him and the Lord. But you might ask the question. Some of you are going to get that at lunchtime, I think. How do we know that one of these two witnesses is Elijah? Are you just kind of making a leap here? Well, let me give you some reasons I think it is. Verse 5 tells us fire flows out of, their, of the witnesses' mouths. Elijah ever used fire in his prophetic ministry? And that is pretty descriptive. 450 prophets of Baal standing on Mount Carmel watched as Elijah's offering was completely incinerated by fire. And I'll tell you what, there are at least 100 out of 150 men who can attest to the fact that Elijah used fire in his ministry. This is something that describes this amazing, amazing prophet, the power to call down fire from the heavens by obviously the hand of the Lord. The second thing is, verse 6 tells us that the witnesses have the power to shut up the sky. Did Elijah ever do that? By the way, 1 Kings 17 and James 5.17 tell us how long Elijah shut up the sky for. How long was it? Three and a half years. Exactly halfway through the tribulation of seven years. And we're told here in Revelation that they will be given that same power to shut up the sky, he says, so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying, which will be three and a half years, the first three and a half years of the tribulation at the end of time. The third, third and final reason... And by the way, if, I, if I've lost you so far, you can go to the website and you can listen to the Revelation teaching and, and it'll fill in some holes for you. But the third and final reason I believe Elijah will be one of these two witnesses concluding the greatest prophetic exploit on planet Earth is simply this. Elijah never died. He just went home. Just hanging out. Now, tragically, Elijah will die, according to what we just read. He's going to be martyred for his faith. He still has a death and a resurrection before him. But if you look back at 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, man, again, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire which separated the two of them. Elijah went up by the whirlwind to heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. And we see now a great and a glorious future for this prophet of Israel who has more work to do on the face of this earth. After his fiery chariot ride home, we know that Elijah appeared to edify Jesus the Messiah on the Mount of Transfiguration. We know that Elijah, at least in the person of John the Baptist, appeared to identify Jesus as Messiah at his first coming. And we know, thirdly, that Elijah will appear to testify to Jesus Messiah just before his second coming. There's an excellent book written about the life of Elijah, studies through it, called The Chariot of Israel by William Varner. I recommend that to you. Varner writes the following, The impact of Elijah the Tishbite is overwhelming. Extending far beyond his ministry of the 9th century B.C. to the distant future, or I would add possibly to the near future in our case. Truly he was one of the greatest men who ever lived. But lest we lose our perspective, because we can look at Elijah and see what he did, 
you know, 850 years before Christ. We can see him there on the Mount of Transfiguration. We can see him prophesying again in Jerusalem powerfully. And we can think, ah, oh, to be like Elijah. Hold that thought and listen one more time. Matthew chapter 17. I want to close with this. Matthew 17. says six days later Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brothers and led them up on a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them his face shone like sun and his garments became as white as light behold Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him we already know what they were talking about Peter said to Jesus Lord it is good for us to be here if you wish I'll make three tabernacles here one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah and while he was still speaking still trying to get his foot out of his mouth a bright cloud overshadowed them and behold a voice out of the cloud said this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased listen to him not Moses not Elijah Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And listen to this. Lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. And I believe that's what we're called to. We look at Elijah, we're excited, we're encouraged at all the things Scripture tells us about this. But he was a forerunner of Messiah to edify, to testify, to witness to him. To let us know, to point us in the direction of Jesus Christ. And in our lives, that's what we're called to. To see no one except Jesus himself alone. Elijah was great, don't get me wrong. But Jesus is far greater. They don't even compare. Elijah, great prophet. Jesus, the greatest prophet and priest and king. Elijah proclaimed Yahweh to be God. Jesus is God. (laughs) Elijah, his exploits are the stuff of history, both past and future. Jesus' existence is from eternity, both past and future. And Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 tells us he is before all things. And by him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from among the dead. That in all things he, Jesus Christ, not Elijah, but Jesus, might have preeminence. How do I live a life that is pleasing to the Lord in the way Elijah's life was pleasing to the Lord? keep my eyes on Jesus and Him alone. And Jesus said, what must we do to work the works of God? How can we please God? And, and Jesus said simple, you believe in the one whom He sent. You keep your eyes fixed on me, Jesus would tell us this morning. And it will go well. Let's pray. Father, there are some fantastic things in scripture amazing things that have happened and all I know is Lord when I go I want to go out like Elijah if you want to send me down a chariot I would be fine with that and Father we so look forward to this whole idea of being caught up and I, I pray and I have a sense and Lord I could be wrong it's, it's your timetable but I have a sense it will be in this lifetime that we finally get called up And I pray for that moment. But Lord, 
Not so that we can have the experience of flying, not so that we can have the experience of, of, of being raptured, but so that we can see and be in the presence of Jesus. That, to me, is the excitement of the rapture. That we will always be with you, Lord. Thank you for the promises of your word, Father. And I pray that you will just prepare our hearts and, and bring us all to that place on our knees before Jesus, trusting in Him and believing in Him. My friends, as we pray this morning, if you have never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that is all it takes to have the guarantee of salvation with the Father. And I invite you to pray with me and just to trust in Jesus, as, as Kathy said earlier. You want your sins washed away? You want to be clean of that junk? And give it all to Jesus. You pray to Him if you want Him in your hearts this morning. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin and make me one of your own. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I believe you are the greater than Elijah, the greater than Moses, the greater than any who have ever lived. I believe that you came as God in the flesh to be that perfect sacrifice for me. I receive that, Lord. I ask that you will teach me now what to do, how to trust you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.